I'm Justin. I'm Nolan. I'm Gabby. Kale Ward. And, and this, this is, is Comicsverse. Welcome to another episode of the Comics First Podcast, where Jake Grubman is laughing, and uh, and I'm crying, uh, mostly because I have no idea how to tackle into this V for Vendetta comic book, which was absolutely amazing and will be the subject of today's podcast. We are winging it. We are scriptless. This is like the 2000-something year when the Writers Guild went on strike, and Bill Maher had to just make shit up and... John Stewart had to like hire his writers and give them their own separate contract. Mm-hmm. Except mm-hmm. now we have, mm-hmm. except that we have no writers. So this is all coming from our minds. And the cool thing is, again, we're talking about V for Vendetta. I thought it was a great read. It was definitely something that I felt like I needed to read two or three times, which is why this is going to be the strangest podcast of all, a podcast in which we kind of just have an open discussion and talk and laugh about things that were going on in V for Vendetta. But before we I introduce everybody, I should remind you all to check out our website, which is comicsfirst.com. Again, that's comicsfirst.com, where you can find other podcasts, videos, articles edited by several people here and written by many people here, and other podcasts starring the lady sitting next to me, who is Dr. Ms. Gabrielle Beans. Hello. Hello, Gabby. Are you ready to talk for some about some V for Vendetta? I'm primed. Are you primed? Uh, you first read V for Vendetta in high school. Is that true? Yeah. I had a friend and we used to watch zombie movies on the bus. And then one day he decided to give me this book and he's like, instead of watching zombie movies, you should just read this book. And that's what I did. Then you won't be a zombie anymore. And yeah, that was the subtext, which I didn't understand until this moment. Oh, really? <laughs> Except that ironically now that makes you the most zombie Thanks, what are you, some kind of sheeple, Kale? <laughs> Wake up, Kale. To... Wake up. What's behind your mask? This is off to a great start. We're not even done with the introductions yet. Anyway, next up, I almost said comics first law student, but what I really meant to say was Columbia University, mm-hmm. third year law editor. student, about to graduate, comics first editor, indie comics editor. I'm sorry this isn't an indie comic, Jake, but one day we'll do a podcast on them. Just kidding. I don't read them. Just kidding. I do. Why? Because you edit them. <laughs> yep. I actually don't. Uh, I don't believe you. It's true. I I love indie comics. Do you? I do. I can name three. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I'm just kidding. We love all kinds of comics at Comics First, especially indie comics. Connor, is your last name Stone Cipher? Stone Cipher. Yeah. Stone. So like you're a cipher of stone. Whoa. Some might say. Yeah, I believe that. And it's Connor's first podcast. It is. He is also a Comics First editor and uh, loves to write some dark horse Hellboy kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Hell yeah. Awesome. It. What's your favorite thing about Hellboy? I love how it it always alludes to something in like American or British folklore, something that like exists in reality. And so it builds these kind of ghost stories around it. Am I supposed to know anything about British folklore other than the Lord of the Rings? That's all you need. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's it. But I mean, if you didn't, then you'd be shit out of luck. Okay. Do do the Brits have folklore? So much. Okay, cool. I should never find out because I've never seen Lord of the Rings. Also joining us is, uh, Kale Ward, who I often call Kale Ward in my head, but I don't say it out loud enough. You say it out loud every <laughs> single time you see me. Kale Ward? So. Just doesn't I, I didn't say enough. it today. I didn't say it today until just now. Can we have a fact checker here? Because, yeah, uh, we need one. Yeah, no, I didn't hear it, but uh, you were already here. I'm sorry. You, here. Nolan, are we at the part of the podcast where I said next up is Nolan? To fact check? All right. Okay, thank you. Kale, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. Awesome. Hopefully that degree in comics will help you out today because... It won't. Okay, cool. It has I already know. Either. Yeah. I will not. No, yeah. If it makes you feel any better, as I've said earlier, I am here for the lower brow audience listening to this because I can only speak in one syllable words. The um, only the only thing I'll have to contribute today revolves around the one class I pretty much failed. 
So it's what, what class was that? Comics and film. Well, you, how did you fail a class called comics and film, or were you just not trying? Because I am the worst. At comics and, or film. Comics and film. Really? Guess what? You, I don't know if you should be working here. You should probably, probably tell me that during your interview. <laughs> I don't know how you fucking got past that, but whatever. Who did your interview? Oh, yeah, me. Just kidding. Uh, it was 10 p.m. It was a Friday. I was over it. I would have hired Chewbacca. And instead, <laughs> I got Kale Word, and I'm much happier. Which would have been a great decision to hire <laughs> Chewbacca. I don't even so know. Compliment Chewbacca. Kale. You know what? I don't like Chewbacca, mostly because I just don't think he should be there. Um, that's all I'm saying. Nolan, how are you? I'm so sorry for my rude interruption earlier. Nolan, PhD student studying the second half of the early modern Ming dynasty. First half. Fuck. Nolan, I'm trying really hard. And every Thank time you. I get Thank a you for closer, trying. Yeah, that was pretty close. I get a little bit closer each time. Yeah. If anyone has any questions about Unix and the Byzantine Empire or the Ming Dynasty, please feel free to email Nolan at nolanbenson at comicsfirst.com. Uh, one of his specialties. Please. Can you give us a tidbit of your information on the state, the status of Unix in the Ming Dynasty versus the Byzantine Dynasty? The Chinese were worse to their Unix than the Byzantines were. What's the long and short of it? What's a Unix? A eunuch is a man whose dick has been cut off. Oh, a eunuch. Yeah. I thought a, a eunuch was someone whose balls had been cut off, but the dick was intact. The Chinese <laughs> took both off. Uh, it's not as clear what the Byzantines did, but lots of different societies had their methods of castration, which vary. I thought you were saying eunuchs, like U-N-I-X, so I thought it was like some kind of like code of Hammurabi shit. The pre, yeah, the prehistory of programming in the Ming yeah, Dynasty. Yeah. I was when you asked what a eunuch was. I was really happy that that's what you thought because I was really scared that you didn't. That you were just fucking <laughs> retarded. But I'm glad that you're not. And anyway, we're here, of course, talking about V for Vendetta. Speaking of eunuchs. <laughs> Speaking of eunuchs, um, I'm here talking about V for Vendetta. There's am I the eunuch or is V the eunuch? No one knows. It's society, man. Is society is this, is society the eunuch, uh, Connor? The first question should go to you. You know, well, in a society where you have no one able to create. You, you know, can, you can tell like, this guy goes to Princeton. Yeah, you can. Yeah, where society can't create, it's like, can they conceive? No. So, Unix. Unix. That being said, I think we should get to talking about V for Vendetta. Connor, I know you prepared a wonderful summary of V for Vendetta. <laughs> Why don't you uh, let us know what that summary is, so that in case someone listening to a podcast on V for Vendetta isn't familiar with V for Vendetta until this very second. Yeah, so V for Vendetta is set in a dystopian future where the the British Conservative Party was elected, and that caught and they they actually they got they got involved in a nuclear conflict, and that nuclear conflict destroyed a lot of the world. And then there was this kind of fractured state that was left after that, and a bunch of powers were competing for who would rule that. And a really like uh, fascist regime took over called the Norse Fire Party. And uh, we start the story when we're actually in the world that the Norse Fire Party actually rules. And it's it's got elements of kind of an Orwellian government where sort of surveillance is is um is kind of trumpeted and and, and people are kind of at enthralled to a a leader, a kind of party leader. And this party has control over kind of all aspects of their lives. And the world isn't doing that well. They're like rationing food. They're at war with other elements of the UK. We're we're in um we're in London, I believe. Right. Yeah. In, we're in, in 1997. 1997. Yeah. And yeah. this was written. Uh, it began in 1982. Eventually finished in 1988. So it's a version of the future re in reference to when Moore was writing it. And so what we see is that uh, 
the the world is is just this it's a fascist regime regime where it's kind of a police state and the police can really do anything they want the the government can do anything they want but there's there's this freedom fighter within the regime uh, named V who we meet because he rescues a girl who's down on her luck and attempts to prostitute herself and accidentally meets a police officer in that process and uh, the police officer is gonna gonna do horrible things and V comes in and kind of slaughters everyone uh, takes her under his wing and shows her uh, his world and as we learn V's fighting against this fascist regime uh, attempting to overthrow it and attempting to establish a state of anarchy where the people can have more agency I think that is a very good summary I think so too and I kind of want to start with a series of conversations or bringing up a series of conversations we had today we were all kind of on different pages i at the last minute was like i don't want to do this podcast the reason why was because i was so afraid i didn't have enough time to for it to sink in and for me to you know experience what i need to and make sure i looked up all the literary references so i kind of want to ask why is this comic probably why is this comic more so than when we talk about a marvel comic or a dc comic why is it sparking so much discussion between all of us and so much varied experience between all of the panelists here today well it's uh much more explicitly political than marvel and dc comics are uh and also very violent in terms of uh some very disturbing forms of violence and it's so tragic and dark much more than most comics so. and, I, and i will say a bunch of people brought up the fact that the printing was a little bit different for this comic than for other comics. So, uh, Nolan, you were one of the people who brought that up. Do you want to talk about that? You mean when it was when, when it he was started it? Yeah, yeah more uh, more started this before he was renowned at all in 1981, but he didn't finish it until 1989, soon after Thatcher entered her third term. So, in the interim, he created some of the works for which he's best known. Uh, Swamp Thing, Watchmen, and From Hell. He actually finished Watchmen just before, or Watchmen was at least published just before this was finally published, uh, two years before. And so that is unusual. It speaks to a certain kind of determination on his part to tell the story, even though he found it hard to tell early on. Cal, uh, you're a writer. Do you agree with what Nolan just said? Sure. That it showed a, a certain sense of determination? How do you? Uh, I mean, I guess I would, I, I, I mean, I would have to see some sort of like evidence of the determination i don't i mean i don't doubt that that's what it was but you know i had never read any anywhere that there was any like difficulty in telling it i i it to me it sounded like he just kind of gotten away from it mm -hmm. and then ended up coming back for whatever reason like it didn't it didn't seem to me to be any any sort of uh, determination you know necessarily it just kind of he just kind of fell away from it but there is something interesting r relating to your first question, Justin, about why this uh, book has sort of inspired so many varying opinions and thoughts and reactions. And he, he talks about in the foreword, I guess, about forgiving his naivety, like in the earlier issues with thinking that it would need the, the, the nuclear holocaust would have to be the uh, catalyst for like a fascist state in Britain. So I think that there is a, there is evidence of the determination insofar as there's a difference in his aims in publishing the comic and in writing the comic from the early issues to the later issues because he's responding to a very distinct political reality. And I think that one of the reasons why all of us have had trouble parsing out like how we feel about the comic is because there is a sort of like a simil like a really strong didactic political program and and like 
aim of the book, but also sort of a fragmented a presentation through very fragmented philosophies and and cultural references that try to bring this political project to the fore. Uh, and and Moore actually uh, mentions in some of his essays relating to the creation of, of this book that he wanted it to be very specific to the British experience. Uh, so a lot of the allusions are things that maybe would, would hit more home to it to an English reader than American. And also a lot of the politics are um, relate to that. That said, I think you can parse a lot of themes that, that, that are universal from its political discourse. But I think any reader needs to consider the, the atmosphere and the times in which it was written to totally understand what Moore was going for. I will say that when I took Paul Levitz's class at Columbia, he talked about V for Vendetta and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen not performing very well in the United States because they were geared toward a more European and English audience. This was specifically about references or the structure of the story? I think he was referring to references in that that Americans weren't as familiar with these references and the story hit them in a different way, maybe Mm -hmm. a less deep way in a way that, you know, didn't drive sales the way that it did in Europe. I think also the immediacy of a political regime is enhanced when your country is small. I mean, in America, we have a we have a we have a large country where state government and national government are like two very separate issues. But in England, I mean, what inspired Orwell and what maybe inspires more is that when when a political will is enacted, it's 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 going to hit you really close to home and and you can feel those effects a lot more directly and and also you know see the faces of maybe subterfuge or like you know oppression more more familiarly you know if, if, if the government is in your city you know the government that's controlling the the entire nation is you know within a drive whereas in america you know you could be living in california and you're you're hundreds of miles away from the, the seat of government um in the uk it's a little different and i think that makes those issues of oppression a little more salient i mean well maybe that's not the right word but they make them more like 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 they're kind of like it's a difference between like having like you know your your neighbor your it, it be in your neighborhood versus versus far away totally yeah. i think it's a total like also in terms of like historical like proximity to world war Two. like even though obviously we have a understanding of world war Two and a cultural you know sort of associations with it in in western europe and especially in the uk the toll of world war Two and like the threat of fascism i think was just way more palpable and so i think that the notion of a you know of a fascist com- government coming into power is just on a historical level like way more poignant than it would be to an american audience This is one of those ways in which Americans view themselves as exceptionalist and there is like some credence to it. You know, like when you tell a it could happen here story about England with fascism, it really is quite believable because fascism swept all of Southern Europe, you know, and and Germany and like every place it conquered for at least a time. So like it was all over Europe. So it seems quite possible. Whereas we Americans have never like really thought that we could become fascist. and, And just, I mean, that Moore is responding to the same sort to a literary tradition within England that you mentioned, Connor, of Orwell, that, yeah, that all is like intra-British, lessons for British people, just as League of Extraordinary Gentlemen explicitly portrays itself as a structuring of the British fantasy sci-fi, like, uh, late 19th century tradition, whereas Watchmen is his, like, book about America that did perform much better in America. I think it's also important to realize, and Gabby mentioned this, in terms of actual British history in in relation to World War II, you know, uh, they mentioned this in the book, but there's, there's this idea that like fascism is born of the moment when security is compromised and when people feel unsafe, they allow much 
much more than they would maybe normally in, in peacetime. And, you know, British citizens had to deal with the bombing of London. You know, they had to deal with, with legitimate aggressors on their doorstep. Whereas in America, I think the only known land invasion was in Alaska by the Japanese. But nothing... Hawaii. Nothing, oh, Hawaii. It was... Oh, well, right. and, and Hawaii. They never landed They never, they never landed yeah, in Hawaii. Oh, uh, yeah, bombed. Right. So, I mean, it was, it was not that, it's never that Americans have, have had to grapple with that concern of like what to do when someone's at your doorstep, who, who's going who's gonna to take control of the protection that you need. So two questions. So, Nolan, you kind of brought this up. Is Watchmen the American or an American version of V for Vendetta? Well, it, it was written around the same time, and it does discuss uh, certain like um, connections between physical violence and patriotism physical violence and like national chauvinism but i mean it has it 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 shows some of alan moore's thinking in relation to the superhero and the comic book at the same time but it is about america i take watchmen personally as like alan moore's like description of america but it's also about the comic book in a way that V for Vendetta is not. V for Vendetta, I think, fits more snugly into a sci-fi tradition of dystopian fiction than it does into the comic book tradition that Watchmen was a kind of a criticism of. Yeah, I would even say that like V for Vendetta, I mean, like I was describing it to my roommate and I was like, V for Vendetta is a lot more uh, of like a, a literature comic book. Like it, it definitely fits as like a thick, you know, slog through literature thing that you have to mm-hmm. get through which league of extraordinary gentlemen is also full of like literary references you know so like in a way you almost feel when you read them like that's where alan moore feels at home mm. but that he works in comic books because he knows how to compose a good comic book i feel like we must have said the word fascism 200 times if there was a comics versus drinking game <laughs> we would be wasted <laughs> we would just if be fascism dead. was the word yeah what is fascism as defined by alan moore in v for vendetta I actually meant to say anarchy, but also fascism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably both are probably important. Both are important. Uh, yeah. Can you define the, both, yeah. please, Noah? The definition of anarchism is probably more complicated in the book, but yeah, both are. Nolan, our resident anarchist. I am an anarchist. Why don't we, I'll just describe these two forces very briefly, and then we can then talk about their manifestation or perhaps lack thereof in uh, the comic book. A lot of people in America don't really know what anarchism is. Fascism, people think they have a good idea of, but it has recently come to the fore in debates online about whether Trump is fascist or proto-fascist or post-fascist, that people have obviously differing ideas about what fascism means. Viva Vendetta is definitely drawing on a European political philosophical tradition in which anarchism is the opposite of fascism. Capitalism and socialism are opposites. Fascism and anarchism are opposites. Uh, There's like uh, two poles, you know, and... anarchists have not always positioned themselves as opponents of fascism because fascism only dates to like the 1910s. That's when Mussolini served in the Italian army. That's when fascism started to get developed as a political philosophy. But no one define them for us because I'm I'm not even 100% clear. Okay. Anarchism is also called libertarian socialism or as Noam Chomsky uh, prefers to call his own beliefs, 
anarcho-syndicalism. Same thing, basically. It's just like small-scale society. No one is rich. No one is poor. Everyone participates voluntarily. No one is required to be a citizen or member of the society. And all work is also done voluntarily. voluntarily. And why is that not communism? It has a lot in common with communism. This is why anarchists were originally called libertarian socialists. The first anarchists were people who went to the socialist internationals that Marx and other socialists all also went to and debated for a kind of less state-oriented version of what those people were advocating. But later on, that became this movement in which the idea was lead monarchs and even democratically elected leaders are all responsible for so much violence that what we should be doing is promoting opposition to them by killing them by throwing bombs at them, basically. And um, that did happen. There was an attempted assassination of a U.S. president by an anarchist. World War I was sparked off by an assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand by an anarchist. That does not bear much resemblance, obviously, to Noam Chomsky's anarchism or to the anarchism that informed Occupy Wall Street. But they are all recognized by anarchists as anarchism, which is to say belief in a society with no leaders. Simple. And What's what about fascism? Fascism is a near totalitarian or totalitarian form of government in which populist uprising is used as justification to dissolve the legislature if there is one or to render the monarchy subservient if there is one. Then the military takes over, goes on foreign adventures as it sees fit in order to enrich the state. All industrialists are forced to produce on behalf of the military. It's essentially a planned economy, just as is socialism, but it's one designed for conquest and an even more total mobilization of the population than most socialist states have been able to achieve. Jake, you are about to finish law school. If anyone should know about fascism, it should be you. Uh, how is it defined in V for Vendetta and how is anarchism defined in V for Vendetta? Yeah, I think those were excellent definitions. I don't think Moore gets into, especially with respect to fascism, I don't think he is exploring the uh, the contents of that form of government very specifically here. It kind of seems like we start the comic, we understand that there's a fascist government, and that's the starting point, and it's treating it like all readers are just going to understand what that means. Probably at the time it was even more relevant, as we've discussed. But I think you can also just generally start it off with the understanding that readers are going to know that it's a totalitarian government. And then you can set that up as the opposition to the protagonist. So I don't think I don't think V for Vendetta challenges that definition at all. I actually don't think the exploration of anarchy is also very explicit. I'm not sure analysis of the book would lead us to a much different definition than what Nolan was talking about, but the implications and the arguments for it that the book suggests, for me at least, had an impact on what I thought of the book as a whole. You know, obviously there are important themes throughout. Uh, I think I think in it in its sometimes brief discussions of what V's anarchic philosophy actually is, it's important to note that he is trying to fight for like a better world, a utopia in his eyes. And he sees anarchy as kind of 
a twofold process that there's this there's this necessary destruction this necessary period of destruction and that's what the 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 the, Z, the v we follow in the novel the the male or at least seemingly male version we follow in the novel that's his part to play is to be the destroyer uh and then he believes that society recreates itself and there's this discussion of like natural order that it's this voluntary order in anarchy and that anarchy is not actually chaos as maybe some people might be primed to believe it is it's kind of a loaded term and as nolan discussed not necessarily defined even by anarchists themselves in a very definitive like standard way but that in this part in this society where we we create the structures we, we recreate our society it's that everyone is buying in voluntarily to a state to a set of natural laws that that no government is required anymore that people just know know how they how they need to act and because of that any choice that you make is ultimate freedom because everyone is in the same mindset that they are that they are to to abide by certain kind of natural states and and so then they can make any choice they want because everyone's in this on the same page and i think also uh, another way that anarchies explore the idea of like an anarchic society is explored in the book is through a kind of opposition that v makes at a point early on in the series where he is you know sort of monologuing at a statue of justice and he talks about how at first he was you know trying to be an agent for justice and then uh, he, he kind of characterizes justice as a an unfaithful mistress because justice is only he, he characterizes justice as being a pawn or as an extension of a malignant and like self-serving social structure like justice is just the hand of the people who are in power and anarchy is the sort of more pure and you know ideal form of not justice necessarily but i think that a big part of the characterization of anarchy in the book it has to do with like this notion of justice being fallible and anarchy being a more essentialized and pure form of of not governance, obviously, but like of people organizing themselves outside of um, coercion from an artificial like body, you know. Okay, anyway, let's get to the point of this podcast, which is V for Vendetta. And we're going to talk about politics or something. And no one's going to take over for me because he is a lot smarter than me when it comes to one or two things. And this is one of those two things. Since V for Vendetta is such a political comic book and since a political group or maybe constellation of groups today specifically models its image on the comic and maybe film V for Vendetta, I thought we should definitely discuss politics today during this podcast. And the, I'd like to open the discussion by saying that many people think that fascism died in at the end of World War II, that the liberal world defeated the fascist world, but this is like totally untrue. Fascism is quite alive and strong today. Portugal stayed fascist until the early 70s. There are fascists, the, the fascist party that Moore is depicting the fictional rise of in this is still exists today and was quite powerful in the 80s. France has a powerful fascist party. Austria does. Austria has a Nazi party that gets votes. And... Many people also don't know this, but Iraq and Syria are both explicitly fascist countries. Baathism, their political philosophy, is explicitly modeled upon Nazism. So, you know, the fascism still exists today, and I'd like to segue from that into a pertinent question in the blogosphere. Is Trump fascist? Would a Trump presidency lead gradually toward the world depicted in V for Vendetta in the opinions of our podcasters? I mean, there's that 
you know, also popular in the blogosphere, as see you, you so aptly put it, is the, I guess, like sadness or disappointment that the Hitler comparison has become more of like a logical fallacy used in argument as opposed to an actual comparison, because now the comparison is somewhat apt. <laughs> <laughs> in but reference it's, but it's, to but Trump. It's, it's like the boy who cried wolf exactly, kind of deal. Yeah. Exactly, but now it's sort of lost all of its weight. But I think one, one way in which I think that Trump's rhetoric definitely harkens to fascism is the nostalgia, the nostalgic aspect, you know, the whole make America great again. Well, they literally say in V for Vendetta on like one of the first pages, like make England great again. Exactly. It's yeah. that nostalgia is just like, you know, if there's a fascist trope along with racism and cultural homogeny, like that's like, yeah, like that's it. <laughs> one of his, uh, one of his wives has said that he kept a copy of like Mein Kampf next to his bed, uh, <laughs> and just read like his you know his writings and like his hitler speeches like every night i think one of the interesting things about that dialogue though of like of like make a great america great again is seen in v for vendetta both in that like make england great again idea but also in the in the church's idea in v for vendetta that you are like a sinner unless you are constantly doing good for your for your country and this is also orwellian as well because in orwell you were constantly tasked by to become the most perfect party member that you could. And it was that friction between kind of not achieving the ideal that kept people feeling as though they had they had something that made them guilty to the party, that the party had some kind of power over them legitimately. Because it, it's it's almost like it's almost like your kids again. You know, you feel like you've done something wrong all the time. And because of that, you have um, automatically even though even if it's logically screwed up, you automatically feel like maybe the party has like a reason to think less of me or a reason to like do something badly towards me, you know? But I mean, this is actually, this is kind of tangential. So sorry, this takes us into a weird yeah. place. But one thing that I didn't realize until just now about v for Vendetta is that it really is not dealing with or very like very sort of gently touches on the experience of the of the normal citizen like evie's really mm. our only way into what the sort of uh, i think the older man she starts sleeping with later right. on is more of a normal your average citizen he's like has to be somewhat involved in crime in order to get by he just wants to like be left alone you know but out of all the characters like that's one you know what i'm saying so it's very it's very much dealing with the higher ups and the machinations of this fascist society rather than the, its effects on the ground in the populace which is really interesting yeah the heads of the party are all major characters yeah i think it's uh that's where the uh the film kind of it's it, one aspect where the film really differs is it, it frequently goes back and forth into the the lives of like the the regular people and how they eventually will embody the ideals of of the is this is V for Vendetta missing that the comic book is it missing the layperson's experience of this fascist world and does it suffer from not showing that or and and I guess what I'm asking is because it was published during this era it assumes people understand that kind of fascism is that lost on us now to an extent Connor I think part of Moore's mission with with writing the book which a lot of people maybe that's not their their initial takeaway is that he wanted to show at least some of the thought processes behind the people in power especially the leader's reflection i mean the leader makes up a lot of a lot of the big monologues in the book and especially his reflection on how like he believes what he's doing is like is very very right and that he's like he has to unite the people as one like kind of fist in order to to keep them safe and that he kind of believes in a way he's like a superhero like he's like very noble in what he's doing and that's a that's just i mean it's an interesting 
point. But also, I mean, and I think Nolan, you'd mentioned this maybe earlier or just in a discussion with me that that part of more what more wanted to wanted to show was how the monster starts to eat itself and how the party starts to dissolve and kind of the inner conflicts that lead to that. I don't know if you want to say, yeah. Yeah, I, the end of the book is characterized by a process of like, uh, oh, by a series of betrayals within the party with each person trying to come out on top, which is classic of like, you know, dictatorships and uh, authoritarian regimes. Since you mentioned the leader, I think we should just touch on this before we go on to any other questions of terrorism and anarchism today. The, the sexual topics that are embodied in the leader and the other kinds of sexualities that we see in V for Vendetta, including the abusive relationship that is fueling several of these betrayals, including uh, extermination of homosexuals, including V's strange, perhaps non-existent sexuality. Yeah. Emotional domination in the... In that, that relationship between two of the party, well, the party leader and his wife. These are really interesting aspects of it that I think we should discuss. Just as a quick opener, I mean, um, most fascist regimes have oppressed homosexuals, but both the Japanese and German fascist regimes had some very prominent homosexuals supporting them who were able to be semi-openly gay due to their power. And, well, yeah, sorry. No, I mean, I think if you have a lot of money... You Do you can be anything. Sorry, go Gabby. Can I make a comment about the leader as opposed to the homosexuality question? Sure. Because it, it links back to what we were talking about in terms of like how fascism is characterized in the book. And I think that when we think of fascism, we often think of a cult of personality. And I think that this book is sort of strangely like it, it, that it's absent from this characterization of fascism. And I think that's why the leader is such a sort of like opaque and interesting, but kind of like weirdly two-dimensional character insofar as I'm not really sure why he's the leader and I'm not really sure you know he's all he's almost exclusively characterized by his love affair with the computer and I think that's really interesting this might sound like the most half-baked thought of all time but is there maybe a like discussion that could be had about like love or at least like abusive types of love being a form of of fascism and that you have rule by one and the unity of like of someone else to your purpose. I mean, in the case of the emotional manipulation at the at the end of the novel, that woman completely controlled that guy in a, in an almost satirical way. I mean, the scenes between between her and him were like, you know, he's kissing her leg, all, all this kind of stuff. Um, is is there anything to be said in, in terms of like the forms of governance that occur on like an intimate scale? It, can those be considered forms of government? Well, I think that you bring up a point in terms of the like the lack of empathy like can you have love without empathy and it's and you know it, it's it's characterized by you know or, or epitomized rather by the leader only feeling love and like affection and warmth for a computer and so i think i don't know really what that's saying but to me like in a sort of vague way it's saying that this the leader of the government at this time can only experience love or affection for a source of power you know yeah, and something that doesn't give him affection back he's yeah. not an equal and he's so uh, like enthralled to it right so there's not like you know the transaction of uh, of intimacy is like completely pervert like it's just perverse you know uh sort of on the other hand of that though and i'm not sure exactly how this relates to your question but i think i, I do want to bring it up v constantly brings up that at one point justice was his lover but she cheated on him with, uh, I, I guess it's, it's Susan, supposed to be, yeah, Susan, Madam the Susan, Chancellor. Yeah. And then, so he started dating 
for lack of a better anarchy. word, uh, anarchy. Oh, I thought it was. I thought his other lover was supposed to be the fate computer who is shared well, by Susan, so she's cheating on Susan. In an and, early monologue, he says he says anarchy, and then he kind of like he, he gives that a face in, but in the I other fate computer. I also wonder if that also goes to show like that another aspect of those two characters, like V, is loving these. He sees the the two concepts. You know, he's loving these two concepts, whereas the leader is trying to love this tangible thing that can't love him but neither of them can love V. We could say more about the sexuality, but while Connor is still here, let me pose this question, take it back to recent politics. If you, if there, if in a Bathist Iraq, someone in a costume and a mask saved a prostitute and trained her to become a terrorist and blew up buildings and killed uh, like low to high level functionaries for the Bathist state, would this be terrorism or would it be justified? Where are they blowing these buildings up? Just in where you'd imagine from, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, Baghdad, the, the Ministry of Surveillance in Baghdad. I, th- I think it depends on what your goal after that terrorist act is. Because V doesn't want to establish another fascist regime. He wants an egalitarian kind of anarchist state. Whereas I feel like if you're, if you're talking about the word terrorism, which I think we have to acknowledge is primed for certain types of terrorism in, when we hear it in America, like we think about some forms of terrorism where the end goal of that terrorism is to establish another fascist regime or another regime that, that, that controls people based on a very like harsh set of laws that limits who, who they can be and, and what they can do. Whereas what V is arguing is we should have uh, some something that, that that does none of those things. It's the um, you know do as you please and be yeah. as you please kind of world, which I think is 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 makes his terrorism a little more a little less less. I mean, it's fraught, but it's less so than I think sometimes some of the things we see in the modern world. Isn't that a little bit of a slippery slope though to say one kind of terrorism is less terroristic? Than the other I guess, kind? Yeah, I, 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 I guess justified. what I'm trying to say is that he is trying to establish the opposite of what he's fighting against, whereas some forms of terrorism attempt to establish just another form right. of what they're fighting against. That's true, of course. But yeah. do they think that? They probably don't. Yeah. They probably think that they're establishing the opposite. Well, and that's that's kind of the point I I, I brought up or was trying to bring up when, you know, when I asked where, I mean, because like we might view, you know, from our point as Americans, like if that happened in Iraq, we would just go, oh, someone's raising up another yeah. fascist state. No, totally. But if you think about cares. It, if, it plays out. if for some reason Saddam Hussein had taken over the United States and New York City and there were American suicide bombers, I think we would obviously yeah, exactly. be about it very, very, very differently. Though that's that's a question of like a conquest of another country, in which everyone always agrees these days, you know, except in Mali when French people, French troops go in there temporarily. But like in the case of like one's own homeland, you know, when is it justified? Well, I think that goes back to the to the kind of image of Guy Fox himself, because he was fighting for what he believed was right, and yet he was turned into this this state appointed symbol of evil. And maybe in in taking the Guy Fox mask as your symbol, you're kind of reclaiming the the nebulousness of that definition that you know it kind of depends on the reference that you're that you're looking at the word terrorist and guy fox you know to the catholics who were being oppressed at the time was you know was a martyr but but to the state that wanted to continue he became uh, you know vilified i mean th- that's a that's a generous reading of the Guy Fox symbolism. I think the, that the Guy Fox part of Ephraim is just not that important. I mean, we there Alan Moore lists off all his all his like influences, and Guy Fox isn't even among them. There's all these f- novels and right. series and 
Boy, but the movie revolves around the Guy I Fox know, part I of know. it. And it's become so significant. I, I was gonna I was gonna mention this a little earlier, but one of the interesting things about the Guy Fox mask is that it's been taken as this sigil for for movements that deal with with civil agency so like wanting to wanting to go against big government or big business something that that wrongfully impedes your ability to make an honest like and fully informed choice so maybe that's withholding information or influencing a financial market so that you know our financial agency is affected but v in this in this novel is not does not only he not only stands for for the questions of like enhanced civil agency but also he stands for freedom of identity because V's story is what's is really interesting because he he went to a he was basically in a concentration camp that the Norse Fire Party had set up for people of marginalized identities that didn't fit into the regime's like view of what they wanted their country to look like and in that concentration camp were Jews they state this Jews blacks or uh, or homosexuals and we know that V was something of that identity and that a lot of or at least you can, it can be read that partially his revenge against the people from from that from that resettlement camp which occurred a, like a huge amount of the killings occurred before we even start the book 40 people had already died a large amount of that need for revenge is revenge against hatred based on like someone marginalizing who he was and and, and he also stands of course for for the questions of of you know civil agency but i think it's it, it, a lot of people forget that he he also has this mission to to allow people to be as they are and not only do as they are as they are I'm sorry, I just, I have a horrible anecdote about this. So when I was like 13, I stumbled upon an anti-Scientologist rally that was organized by Anonymous. And that was like the first time I saw like the Guy Fawkes mask. And I think it's so interesting that, you know, you and mentioned this because obviously like he's, the mask is not, it's not a it's not a catch-all for like an anti-establishment movement it's like uh, it's a it's a a sort of rallying cry for freedom individual freedom and it's hilarious that the first time i encountered it in my life was in a, like i mean okay i'm not a fan of scientology but like an anti-religion sure, religious <laughs> yeah, freedom yeah yeah, yeah 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 sorry that was a horrible anecdote i thought it was a great anecdote no it was horrible well, you know, we have to be careful talking about Anonymous, right? Because this is going to go out on the internet. Who knows who will listen to it? I just want to say, Anonymous, I love you. I never, ever, ever look at anything besides G-rated websites. And there's no reason to go into my computer and post <laughs> a public list of any website I've ever been to. Uh, because I'm like Mr. Rogers on there. I don't say anything inappropriate at all. I'm going to step in and suggest that we talk further about how effective the uh, use of the Guy Fox mask is. And whether, you know, Nolan was saying before that Connor's reading uh, of that symbol in this book was generous. I'm just, I hope we uh, talk about that more. I'm going to give Nolan just a moment to recover, but you said you wanted to add something. I was just very surprised to find upon finishing V for Vendetta when I had read about half of it before, but not the whole thing that at the end, V is a hacker, sort of. You know, V has been hacking to manipulate the party. And I was, I never thought there was such a yeah. close connection between the activities of Anonymous and uh, v that as that I w that was I was like oh that's why you know, for people for people it. who don't know the uh, the party runs has this kind of computer which can calculate partly like the best way to run the state it seems like and also give them like surveillance info on every like activity um, that might threaten it and V has has like been hacking that computer the 
for for years and that's that's partly how he runs such a well organized like terrorist organi- I, uh, I think something spoiler. that's also like it's uh, to me it's really funny because these computers obviously this book was written in the 80s you know mm-hmm. when computers were you know not born but they were in their infancy like my dad was a hacker back then like you know with the knowledge haven't we, you seen the movie hackers that was made in the 80s i think or maybe early that was 90s, 90s, excellent 90s. film i mean no but it was fine jake don't lie our audience expects more from us. What about the computer, though, Kale? That's all. Just I bet my dad could hack the the fate computer. Like it, <laughs> it probably wasn't that hard. I love that they talk about punch cards. Uh yes, yeah. a whole room full of punch cards or something. That it's a you know it's an open question that we weren't able to answer. Uh, when you find out that V has been hacking or somehow manipulating the fate computer that the government uses to manipulate the population in turn, you you see a complete copy of it, including the entire room that it's in that V has, and it's not made clear like were two copies of this powerful computer system made in the first place, and one is not known of. Did he build this complete? copy from schematics personally i think it's a it's just kind of a representation you know for people in the 80s who might not know that like that he can reproduce everything that would be done from that computer through this console but to interpret it as like the ability to hack into that computer would be more accurate i would say i wonder if there's like a a thematic representation of that too like there you know he sits down in that chair and and like to me they both the 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 leader chancellor susan whatever we're calling it adam uh, susan and v you know they're almost you know the exact same yeah yeah they're both alone you know yeah they're both yeah like yeah like we can see them both, both asexual yeah well and in in this sort of bigger scheme they're both looking at this machine that they're watching sort of like plot the out voyeuristic the, they're the panopticons the two panopticons of the society it's all very yeah, Foucauldian, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know very early Foucauldian stuff i think like uh but hacking as a as maybe like a trope in the early 80s i think could just be like an avatar for for personal agency you know not accepting the technology that you don't understand but understanding that it was built by someone probably as smart as you and trying to you know somehow affect your environment via a system that seems very like monolithic but actually can be recreated i don't know and that's why it's always like teenagers hacking you know for a teenage reading audience it's like look what uh, authority look what agency they have yeah uh, that they otherwise are denied what's the matthew broderick movie is it war games war games yeah the last Starfighter. That's some just film. video games, not hacking. But I yeah. just, I just know Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, Connor, did you have anything you wanted to add to this section? I think, ju- I think just to reiterate, like, I mean, I'm not sure. And one of the characters poses in actually the book, you know, who V really is. But, but he says, you know, is he a Jew? Is he a homosexual? Or is he black? And like, that's just something that I've just again, like, never heard people talk about V for Vendetta as representing like that that kind of struggle with identity and, and, a, and a culture that doesn't want to accept it. And I think people who need to who want to appraise the book should appraise it from not only the angle of like anti-establishment, like Gabby was saying, but also you know, pro like identity. But does is it does it succeed on that front? I mean, it is an open question, but yeah, that may be a question that it doesn't address. That's it's, it's extremely open. Yeah, that's true. I have a question actually. Sorry to interrupt you, Kel. If if V were here in America, 2016, Bernie or Trump supporter? Neither. Neither. I agree. I have no idea why I asked that, Kel. I was just gonna say I I don't I don't know that it doesn't necessarily answer it. 
and the answer uh, is probably obviously up to interpretation. Is it the question of, of whether identity is important or who, what? Who, who, oh, who he is. Who okay, or yeah. what or he what, is, yeah. yeah. Maybe not even. Um, in, in, you know, when Evie. When she takes the mask off. When she takes the mask off and after he dies, like, isn't it's her face? It's her face before yeah. like all it, this happened. Yeah, it's like a picture of her face over his face or something. Or something, yeah. yeah. So I think uh, to me, the assumption is like, if it's not who he, who he is, it's supposed to be like what he is behind the mask is like this innocence that she has when the book starts. Or, or he's underage female sex workers. Maybe mm-hmm. that's the revolutionary yeah. class that's being called to action. That here. could be. That yeah. could be. And that's the book you need to write, Nolan. Maybe, maybe that. that's the book we read. But can we get into a little bit of uh, more of the specifics of the comic? And, and I know we've been talking about this pretty much the whole time, but who is V as is defined within the world of the comic? Well, he's a person who was of one of the disallowed identities in the uh, fascist regime that the story takes place in. And he was, you know, forced to go to the resettlement camp, which is essentially a concentration camp and had medical uh, experiments performed on him, which we are told affected his psychology in some way. And that's pretty much, which caused him to, well, we don't really know if the, the experiment gave him maybe this you know preternatural intelligence or what but he's able to to destroy the camp and escape and we don't really know what happens in the intervening five years before the events of the book take place but i think connor's point is really interesting because there's about v representing someone who is a mar- of a marginalized identity taking action against a society that oppresses him or them because there's a weird sort of seesaw between V representing a marginalized identity and V being subsumed by the idea of like of his political ideology and I think that's why it's so slippery to know where he actually comes from and who he is because he literally says I am an idea and in becoming the embodiment of this political mission he kind of you know foregoes or at least makes non-essential his the identity that which that that started off the chain of events that made him who he was which is i think super complex and and hard to deal with there's the idea that maybe he i mean he, he refers to himself as the vox populi kind of like a, a silent majority but then also that you're saying this idea that he's like also a silent minority you know like and and he maybe chooses to like you said forego that in so, so because maybe becoming an everyman makes his statement more powerful but also we know that he's, for whatever reason, the only person who's able to survive this experimentation, True. which is sort of an exceptional thing. And we're not really sure why or how, but that's sort of central to his backstory. He's also very clearly uh, highly educated. If you if you look at it alongside Brave New World in 1984, the same theme is being evoked of like, uh, the state is illegalizing the humanities tradition and this person who remembers it is able to resist or who has a whole library underground that is their and own. And a jukebox. Yeah, and a train of their own. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's exceptional. I mean, he's basically superhuman, right? He's also He also must have some source of wealth. He has a massive complex. All of this uh, culture that he's preserved, he kills police officers and members of the party extremely easily actually with almost no resistance until the final pages and he's also a step ahead of everyone else in the book 
and he's able to cultivate roses underground. You know, you really the more I think about it, the more he's just like Joker in the second Christopher Nolan Batman movie. He's like always able to have placed a whole room full of barrels full of explosives wherever they need to be in order to like have and he's got these goons who never talk and they just do what he says or but the thing is there are no goons. He actually if it if he was to do all this with wealth, you'd see some trace of it. I think the implication is that after he destroyed the Lark Hill resettlement camp, he repurposed it to be his like bat cave and nobody notices because the economy is in such a poor state that the government can't even manage its own resettlement camp so they just let that one go to uh the go to ground is that what you say i don't think so i well i mean maybe because the detective goes to the camp yeah i disagree with you on the that's the only time anyone has been in years clearly yeah so maybe he's underground he he lives in the victory victory station that's, yeah, and he literally recre- recreates the resettlement camp in his massive right. compound to mm. screw up the, uh, the, the, the the voice of fate. Guy. One, one interesting thing that is, is it's, it's just a line that, that, that he says in passing as he's showing Evie kind of like, he's, it's like the, the this is your kingdom now speech where he's kind of going through the, the shadow gallery and showing her each room. And he goes to one and he says like, this is where I create bombs and also psycho like tropic drugs. And you can make them like as cheap as because water. water yeah yeah and um it could be that that he's maybe using these drugs to produce some of the illusions that he uses to like take people down and that we see you know their perspective of it where he's like this specter i mean i think he does have superhuman strength and stuff but he also may be using those drugs in some way offensively i mean it just it just seems uh, kind of weird to me that he mentions that he makes those if he's not going to use th- and along with bombs you know like he's kind of putting them in the same context Back to your, uh, Nolan, your point about uh, him having, you know, like these resources and, and, and you know, being sort of, joke, you know, Nolan Joker-ish. He, um, in the film, and I'm probably going to keep going back to that since I have that point of reference, and the big climax is that everybody in London gets a, a package which contains the Guy Fox mask, the, the hat, and then the cloak all individually packaged sent to every house in london that's hilarious i uh, didn't know that (laughs) with you know like i i I mean i think we're supposed to assume a name and address like appropriate sizes appropriate sizes that also it's absurd that like total registration of the population would be portrayed as the triumph of individual freedom like if everyone's address (laughs) is like on record now you're free (laughs) my yeah so my roommate and i were talking about that as we watched it last night and and we were just like but how? Like, well, he uses fate in the comic book to email pamphlets to everyone. That's how they get those pamphlets that talk about love. And, oh, that's right, all those poems. Those, yeah, yeah, those poems. And, but, but still, like, I yeah. mean, in the in the film, this is you know, this is hundreds of thousands yeah. of physical packages going out to specific people. Right? How? Like, he must have been packing those for years. I mean, yeah. If you ask me, that's where his you know all his resources went. That's like, where the lost years of V were. Yeah, yeah. but also manufacturing and packaging packing his boxes. outfits. <laughs> where do you? Yeah, where do you even get that many Guy Fox masks? <laughs> but I said the whole pamphlet thing does bring me to the American Revolution a little bit. That was what they used mm. to kind of encourage people to you know go against the british back then but really quick only because i know connor you have to leave soon i wanted to just bring up evie bring up her whole experience her journey her character's journey throughout this you know a lot of people i heard said she was a little bit irritating in the beginning i say i i liked her from the beginning i thought she was a very compelling character and one of the things that made me feel that way was how she was depicted through david lloyd's art i definitely felt like i could see the pain on her face the worry on her face the 
heaviness of the environment that she's living in on her face and i thought that that was really great but i wanted to ask you connor kind of what you thought about evie and what your impression of her was and what you thought of her character's journey throughout the all 12 issues yeah uh, we we discussed uh kind of before the podcast that she's a little frustrating in the beginning because she's so naive i mean that said she's 16 i think so and she's living in a world where she's had like a pretty like not a lot of like role models have survived you know she hasn't had a lot of like good upbringing so like it, it makes sense maybe that she wouldn't be as confident and and kind of naive but she she grows into a strong a very strong character but then there's this this strange moment in i think the issue 9 where suddenly she kind of reverts back to being a little like dependent again where v v is kind of being it's very teenagerish like yeah she's very yeah exactly adolescent in her in her knowledge yeah oh, come so on. The- her up though i mean how i mean well yeah but, it, what, but only at this point she's saying yeah, the- that she knows all these things and she he wants she wants him to just say it but he knows she couldn't handle it that's i mean that's what a teenager yeah, would the, do. the, the right. moment the moment is like is like v is kind of showing her again like this is my kingdom like here's like the thing that i i'm gonna do i'm gonna say farewell and she like doesn't understand that he's gonna say farewell but like in, in a very in a strangely immature way but that's just like that's 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 kind of a strange moment but i think evie as a character another thing we were discussing before the podcast that she's maybe integral in representing that like both genders are required for an effective political movement and and also kind of goes back to this question of identity you know this isn't a male-centric uh narrative at least on v's side i mean we we talked about some problems with the with the book in general because in its depiction of women but in terms of v's mission he's like he has to have evie without evie he's nothing and And that's 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 at least a pro um maybe 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 feminist i don't you know well i think it's certainly evie is a good foil to v and then sort of speaks to I guess like part of V's political mission and insofar as like you don't have to be remarkable to be able to enact change and you don't need to be remarkable in order to educate yourself and to survive tragedy and to be able to lead and I think that you know I was frustrated with some of the earlier characterizations of Evie because she keeps on talking about how stupid she is and I think it's just kind of you know he treats the character pretty harshly which is kind of hard to read sometimes but I think it might have been, in, or it, it, I think it was intentional insofar as she's able to progress and she's able to learn and she's not necessarily, she's not, be, you're not beginning with, you know, V is selecting, as we see in other sorts of narratives where he's like looking for the golden child and the generation that will take on the, the mantle of his, you know, his political opposition he's he he chooses he plucks a girl literally out of obscurity out of you know total social degradation and then is able to help her become something more and help her to just you know become educated and become have some personal agency and i think that's pretty effective uh, not like super not super effective <laughs> but i but could I, have done so much critical. better <laughs> but, but yeah Moore. exactly like oh evie appears no but um <laughs> yeah i wonder was Evie just plucked from the street? Like, for me, like, with someone, with a character who can see so many steps ahead, like, you know, like V or, or you know, how we're led to believe V is, did he just pluck her from the street? Or, or was there an element of, of plotting there? Because her background seems to really be complimentary of someone who would 
be uh, like a, a social activist and be very uh you know her parents were social activists and protesters and who died doing that and in the film like her brother was a victim of whatever big conspiracy the government had enacted so i i mean to me it's it's not just that she was plucked from the street no i, I won't even say that i necessarily think that but to play the devil's advocate there did you know could there have been an element of plotting i guess i think that it would be impossible to say with any level of like conclusiveness whether or not evie specifically played into v's larger plan but i think her story is the story of many of the young people in this fascist state her parents weren't i don't as far as I know, weren't really like political protesters. Her dad was killed because he was part of a socialist group when he was in university, like way back when, which doesn't necessarily connote like a significant amount of political involvement. It's not like he's part of one of the resistance groups or anything. And I think like really, she's not, I mean, when we first meet her, there isn't anything about her that makes her seem like the heir to the sort of superhuman political resistance guy you know what i'm saying like she she's constantly in doubt she's she's she feels as if she doesn't know anything she doesn't have any ties to the previous culture which has been erased all of this is being introduced to her by v and i think if there's anything remarkable about her or special about her that might have made her a target or like a you know a an attractive cohort of V would be the fact that she is receptive to her mind being changed. Like she is receptive to not accepting the, the system as it stands. And we're not really sure. Well, I mean, I think the riots that the people have, you know, in the later parts of the of the story show that people do have a sense of individual thought and like want to have recourse against the government. But I think the only thing that I can say about Evie in terms of her relationship with V is that she isn't someone who's just saying like, who who the hell are you? Leave me alone. Like she has her night. Perhaps it's her naivety that allows her to be open to this very strange experience and allow it to change her. I also just wanted to take a a step back and look at the character more generally. I'm I'm curious what you all think about how effective she is as a character and maybe just how effective the characters in this book are, or I would say, you know, throughout the book. When I think about Evie, I, I think she has like two, potentially three strong moments in the book. The first one is where her lover is killed and there's that uh there's that one page where it shows her remembering the death of her mother her father being led away and then this man uh being killed and it shows her face in this um i don't know i thought that page was a powerful moment the second is probably when she is before the what she thinks is a tribunal and she decides that rather than sacrificing her integrity she would face death and then Potentially also at the end, once she's decided to take up the mantle of of V and become that symbol for the people. Other than that, though, I thought it was... I don't find Evie to be all that satisfactory of a character. She starts the story being a victim. She's saved by V, but, uh, you know, that that doesn't seem to me to be a healthy relationship between those two characters. The first time she suggests the potential for some romantic relationship and he immediately casts her out and then when they reestablish their relationship it's only after this really disturbing 
torture sequence that involves that uh, that hearing where she's able to have maybe her strongest moment in the book. But I also think that's representative of all the relationships really throughout the book. There's a sort of disturbing power dynamics. None of the relationships really seem satisfying or healthy. I mean, we've talked about the relationship between the leader and his computer, which was kind of a strange thing. But I mean, if you think about all of the relationships throughout this book, there's something disturbing about basically all of them, except maybe between the two detectives. I mean, there's the party leader and his wife, who is very manipulative. The other one who's killed, he was abusive toward his wife, and and she winds up, you know, that also, that character wasn't very satisfactory. I think, I, think. I think just to clarify, I think the party leader and his wife, I think that's Dascombe. He's the guy that runs the TV station. Dascombe gets killed. It's yeah. um, an almond or almond. Al- it's, almond. Uh, almond. It's, almond it must be Derek killed. Almond. Almond was or the no. abusive guy. But yeah. the woman at the end who survives, but... That's Dascombe's widow. I that's think that's Dascombe. Th- okay, that's Dascombe. You're right. But okay. the one who is the... I also had a ton of trouble keeping the white-haired track of the woman? various characters. Yes, or Hayward, like blonde, right? Hayward or blonde or white hair? Maybe I thought that was Hayward? just her name. I don't. Whose whose wife was she? I thought Dascombe she was Dascombe's. Dascombe's oh, it wasn't Dascombe. Conrad Dascombe. Who was the guy who got killed at the TV station? That was Almond. Yeah, it turned out to be Almond behind the mask. Bitter almond. Yeah, that's right. Almond. almond. No, it wasn't almond. almond. Got killed it wasn't almond. It was the blonde haired guy. It was the blonde haired guy who was the mm, the gay t- dude. Um, was he gay? I think he was gay. Yeah. The one who was like, oh, he has such a beautiful voice. That's why they chose him to be fate. And then he was mm. making fun of almond and was like, oh, bitter almond. <laughs> bitter almond. Almond definitely dies though. How does he die? He does. Yeah, he forgets to load his gun. Ah, that's right. He gets stabbed. Yeah, 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 uh-huh. yeah, yeah. But that's I think right. one point that you brought up, Jake, that I was you know struck by when I read this book like years ago and then once even more so like reading it this time is the way in which V has to like reiterate the violence that the fascist regime enacts on the populace on Evie in order to make her a good political agent and I think that that is really I mean I think it leads to the the question of whether we think that V is amoral like is he immoral or is he amoral and is there does he have any like he he clearly is working for a utopic ideal but does he does he care about like who he kills or who he damages in the in the process and i think that that's like really troublesome because we're meant to we're meant to admire v very very blatantly i'm not so sure about that oh yeah I think we Please are. I think I think we're meant to like the reason why the, the 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 reason why I say this is because he embodies a lot of the tropes of the traditional like debonair action hero. Like he's very well cultured, he's skilled in fighting, he has a preternatural knowledge of the of the actions of his enemies. Mm-hmm. He's a gentleman in some ways. Yeah. And so I think that he does, you know, and for better or for worse, he does embody a lot of the, you know, aspects that we're meant to admire and in like a protagonist. But then he has this very troubling, like moral agenda or lack thereof. You know, that's why I, that's why I ask if we believe that V is amoral or immoral. Well, first of all, of the of the kind of like 
chivalrous debonair hero uh as to them they kill people a lot you know d'artagnan and the rest of the three mm-hmm. musketeers lancelot they kill a lot of people lancelot kills people just because he's in love with the king's wife and right. for no better reason than that a bunch of people yeah i think it's really important well maybe not really important but i think it's it's worth pointing out that he really only kills people directly related to but do we know that? I mean, when he blows he up some... the Houses of Parliament, there's got to be some collateral yeah. or any number of those terrorist attacks. Like, there are definitely mm-hmm. people who were caught in the crosshairs. I, there's I no that, way to... That's yeah. definitely true, but yeah. the way that the book sort of skims over that and the fact that, like Nolan was saying before, uh, lots of similar characters kill people all the time. I think that just supports what you were saying before about how he's we're supposed to think of him as the protagonist. And, yeah, and even still, those people would have... Like, you know, in, in his mind, and even necessarily, well, uh, yeah, they, even if they weren't directly related, they would have died for the, the cause, you know, they would have died for his cause. His cause, not for the state, the party's cause, and thus. Well, if, I mean, I, what, like, I guess if, if they weren't complicit, then they would have died to. I mean, V's both cause. sides probably like would have the said greater they died good. I guess cause. that's yeah. actually that's actually part of the rationale of Islamist terrorism that emerged once the Egyptian regime under uh, Nasser, I think, started to uh, torture people a lot. Was this idea that if bystanders get killed, uh, they're just doing their duty by dying for the cause, or they are complicit if they're not willing to die for the cause? And that's why I think it's so un- it's so hard to fully. I, at least when I mean, I'll just speak for myself. When I was reading the book, it's it's hard to fully like invest in V's like political program or or lack thereof. Like you're yeah. not meant to, I guess. But like, I don't I don't think you are. But it's yeah. a. But you know what I mean. Are. It's just like I don't. Well, I don't know because why would um why would more go through all the trouble of making him? I mean, I don't know. I think he is a very like attractive figure in terms yeah. of like being so cultured and being sort of the the la- like the bastion of human culture in this really horrible fascist society and like the the even the you know the costume and the mystery and all yeah, of these things it's exciting it's like, you know and, and he's impressive right yeah. but he's insane and he acts insane toward people toward evie who's the only person close to him to for us to see this with. right but i i don't think it's clear that he's supposed to be insane in the book there's some indication you know, they, they say that at some point, and obviously that sequence where he imprisons her is yeah very upsetting, but then she comes out and thanks him for it. And she ends up she just does. like him. She becomes, yeah. Which is she really, and that's why I think it's so disturbing that mm-hmm. he, like, the way he trains his pupil is through the mechanisms of, like, that is by putting her through what he underwent, which is, like, so disturbing. Yeah, I don't, you know, and I don't, in the scene after that, in which she keeps asking him to explain everything to her and he won't, I don't interpret that to be a flaw on her part. I think it's just reasonable for her to ask that. It's just him being like overly theatrical, yeah, not willing to just level with her. He's He won't be just a person. He insists on being an idea. You can't kill an idea. One of the two different aspects of this comic that I think were imported to later Batman fiction, uh, that... Mm. You can't be an idea imported into the first Christopher Nolan Dark Knight movie. And at the very beginning when he shoots gas out of his hands, I swear the whole shtick in Batman Mask of the Phantasm came from that. But I, I don't know. The dating fits, but I don't know. That's, that's the best Batman movie. It's a great period. Batman movie. Uh, but also I wanted to bring up, I wonder if there's some like biblical allegory to V and Evie's relationship. Like obviously, you know, V was born 
out of like the explosions and stuff at the at Lark Hill. He puts Evie through the same thing, and then we're led to believe that her baptism is through water, right? Mm. Like the the torrential rains and stuff. Mm. Ooh, this may be some thin logic, but I mean. Uh... I guess I think we can like settle this, you know. I think I think V is meant to be no more ubiquitously sympathetic than Batman, and I think uh, Jake, uh, you seem to think he is meant to be totally sympathetic, which is a fine case. And so do you, Gabby? I mean, it's quite likely, but I just didn't read it that way. I just didn't think of V as like my own mentor figure, not like an Obi Wan. I would much rather be around Obi Wan Kenobi than V. You know, and both are willing to kill people if it comes to that in resistance to some kind of authoritarian power. V is just much more eager to. Yeah, well, the comparison to Batman is interesting because I think definitely you would say that Batman's, his objectives are supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to agree with what he's trying to do, even if not the specific methods. I don't know. I I do think there's complexity. Like it's it's clear that his measures are extreme, but also at at times he has this sort of lightness too. You know, when he goes in to kill the doctor, he does that in a totally different way, and it seems to be because they had a different type of relationship. He also purposely does not kill Finch, and yeah. that's something that he recognizes later in the book. Mm-hmm. Finch is a protagonist for sure. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that both of the detectives, like Finch and uh, Dominic, I think is his number two, were kind of like good guys. Dominic, I'm not so sure, but I feel it more strongly with Finch. In in the film, I mean, Dominic is just kind of, he's Finch's like right-hand man, but they're not very, you know, he doesn't, he has about the same level of character as he does in this. He works because it's a job. Mm -hmm. I don't think he he really, he doesn't seem to put too much heart necessarily into what he's doing like he's doing the job but it's not his life dominic you mean whereas correct me if i'm wrong doesn't finch go into the some kind of like climactic scene in the final movie and come out of it alive whereas john hurt playing the leader does not and like the and finch himself is sort of like exonerated at the end of the movie yeah, uh, V V never meets Finch in the well. Finch never meets V behind the mask, mm-hmm. uh, or, or as the guy you know, the Guy Fox mm-hmm. traditional as v. like the man from Room Number Five. He never figures that out in the movie. I think he did well in, in a weird way. He does, but mm-hmm. he never meets that V. He does meet you know Hugo Weaving in a wig and you know sunglasses, but he never meets oh you know uh-huh. weird. Yeah, but they never, yeah, the that final confrontation is done by Creedy and John Hurt in the mm-hmm, film, The mm-hmm. Chancellor. I think the relationship between Finch and the leader is really interesting because the leader seems to just barely tolerate Finch. And probably because he does recognize the cracks in the system. And there's that scene in the book where Finch is like, oh, yeah, like I did this thing. And the leader is like, and I barely let you live. (laughs) And it's like it's 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 an interesting relationship insofar as it like it does show that the administration, I guess, if you want to call it, is not just monolithically evil, that there are people within it who are trying their best to exist within it, but don't necessarily like totally drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah, this is an important aspect of fascism and totalitarianism. Not just that, that like it's made up of regular people, but also that for 
talent in order to perform certain tasks such as detective work. It depends on people with like good training, people with the capacity to question its truth claims. And in the case of Finch, he's a good example. It depends on people who received this training before society deteriorated to the state that exists in under this state. Like it's almost as though like once Finch is gone, who's going to do this? Nobody is as good at it as him. Everyone else is like corrupt and like self-serving and willing to like throw someone else under the bus. So obviously they're investigations aren't going to go very far you know so like it depends on people who who have like uh ideals but are still willing to like play along just for Mm -hmm. the safety of everybody yeah he's definitely willing to take it pretty far he goes so far as to take acid immediately regrets it at a concentration (laughs) and then eventually strips naked crawls through the the grass and then walks home you ever wonder if maybe this whole book was conceived when Alan Moore took acid at a concentration camp? And or then, yeah, I uh, mean that's a that that is the definition, both literally and figuratively, of a bad trip. Uh, yeah. <laughs> to take a trip to a concentration tra- camp good. and then take another trip and into maybe, your own so- self. Maybe after <laughs> Margaret Thatcher got elected, that's the first thing he did. He was like, "I'm going to Auschwitz and I'm bringing this acid." Right in, people. What do you think? Did Alan Moore take uh, some drugs at a concentration camp? Just kidding. Don't write it. We know. We know he did. Yeah. And and more importantly, what do you think Alan Moore's... Is V for Vendetta like a fair reaction to the Thatcher years? Or is it like an over... Is it an exaggeration? You know, is he overreacting? Were things so bad that a depiction of a fascist state genocidally killing all homosexuals was the proper response to them? Yeah. I had this thought. I don't... Obviously, I don't have personal experience with it, and I haven't studied it a ton, but there have been lots of conservative governments that haven't merited a you know, depiction of a fascist dystopia in response. Well, they don't always have um, you know, sci-fi authors working under them who get their work put out there like more can. Yeah, maybe those regimes are just crushing their artists. But I mean, on the flip side... <laughs> The, I mean, I'm sure you all have heard of uh, the American government's purposeful non-response to the AIDS crisis as a form of genocide. Certainly Thatcher's regime was doing the same thing over in England. So is that specifically what he was talking about? It's quite possible. Well, I and to go back to the film again, you know, Moore said, you know, we were talking about this earlier. He says something to the effect of, you know, if the Wachowskis, obviously he didn't like the film. He doesn't like anything. Yeah, he doesn't like any movie that's made from his films, uh, from his comics. He, you know, he said something to the effect of, you know, if if the Wachowskis wanted to make a film that was a satire of the a current criticism, uh, uh, yeah, uh, a satire or a criticism of the current government, they should have just made one or made V for Vendetta in America instead of England. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you know, I kind of feel like this was that for him. Sure, yeah, when he wanted to criticize America, he wrote Watchmen instead. But yeah, totally. But also the parts of, of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that have 1984 also constitute a, a criticism of the British government. But I mean, you can criticize it more broadly for all kinds of things. V for Vendetta is specifically about Thatcher, specifically about what might come to pass years so, down the line. Yeah, so even, I mean, even if it, even if he was overreacting, I mean, it's a criticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, now... We're not going to be able to say that he was right or something, but the discussion might still have been important. I I would be interested to hear like an older person, you know, maybe, Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe even maybe someone Alan Moore's age, you Mm -hmm. know, maybe someone who who would know is, you know, 
was he right? Was he, you know, was his criticism apt? Was it, uh, you know? I mean, clearly, like, the UK is not plunged into fascism at the moment. But there, you know, there's a certain level of, like prescience i suppose in his in his view on the future i mean the bnp was elected to the european parliament and you know ukip was you know had a much stronger influence in you know the uk sort of political landscape than anyone could have expected so i i think that the nationalist the the, the aspect that i think rings most true is the ever the, you know the sort of bubbling malevolent nationalism that is sort of under the surface of the British political landscape and and you know now like the American political landscape I think that when we were talking about Trump we could have a pretty I don't know I there, there's a discussion to be had about I don't know I, I I would I would more maybe I don't really it's like a terminological difficulty that I'm having but I would more readily call Trump like a nationalist before I would call him straight up a like fascist let me respond to a few things you said there, Gabby. One, look at how they talk about Pakistanis in V for Vendetta. They're like the archetypal example of like people to be trod upon, like a Paki, they say. It's shot like a Paki. And let's keep in mind that Pakistan is a former colonial possession of England. Like, this is people who were formerly dominated by the British military and the East India Company being talked about as though they're like less than human in England. And, but it's, and it's a good, and it's a smart thing. And then let's think now about how Muslim refugees in Europe are being talked about in England and elsewhere. I mean, if anything, parties like the British National Party are being elevated right now by demographic pressure and like, uh, problems that are going on throughout Europe. Now, as to Trump, one thing I really wanted to mention earlier that I didn't get a chance to was that the role of religion within uh, within V for Vendetta is, in my opinion, quite typical of fascism. In uh, Fascism was predominant in Southern Europe, and in every Southern European country in which it had a long foothold of decades, the, the part of the Catholic Church that held sway there was complicit every time. And to me, it's no coincidence that Trump is Catholic, but maybe that's like reaching too far. I don't know. But just, I mean... One lead no, one need look no further, I think, than the way Trump talks about homosexuals and the way his supporters. It's more about his supporters than him. Because what does what does Adam Susan say about homosexuals? Nothing. What do the people who support the current regime say, or who actively support it, whether they wish to or not, about homosexuals? They say some pretty awful shit. I think that this is a good topic for us to close on uh, as a discussion to start now. How much similarity is there between Thatcher's Britain, Susan's Norse Fire England, and the Trump's America that may come? Well, I think it's just like a recurring... It's a historical continuity that we've seen like time and time again, where in times of like economic depression and you know, social dissatisfaction, people become polarized. And, you know, we're seeing that in the, you know, Bernie Sanders Trump thing. We see it in the UK with Corbyn and the conservative party leaders. Uh, it's just, it's literally, you know, the same story over and over again. So I think that it's easy, as you said earlier, Nolan, to look at the threat of fascism or the threat of a totalitarian state as Americans with a sense sense of exceptionalism that you know democracy will prevail and that our you know wonderful values that are set forth in the constitution will be withheld forevermore but obviously like we're in a very very desperate time 
Uh, honestly, I would say that at the point at which you are told you must take an oath on the Constitution, I don't mean like a pledge to the flag, but literally like you must take an oath on the Constitution to become a citizen or something, you're already living in like a partially fascist state. And this has been being proposed by Tea Party people for like 10 plus years already all over the U.S. And also just the, you know, I mean, we've seen... I don't know. I, I don't even know whether to call it gradual because honestly, there is just a huge sen- like a huge sense of historical continuity in terms of like the government very new, like in a nuanced way, subverting the individual will of the people through legislature. Like it's hard to say like, OK, we're becoming less free, like significantly less free than we were. In terms of um, technology's ability to monitor us, we are becoming less free. And that is a topic with which. Alan Moore deals drawing on Orwell in the comic. And the Patriot Act. Sorry. <laughs> Act In response to terrorism. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I I think you guys covered covered it pretty well. I think the point you could make is that if if this is an effective critique of the Thatcher administration, then surely similar responses would be appropriate today. Of course, not to the current administration, but to you know, certain movements in government in the United States specifically. So what you're saying is we should occupy a, a, a park headquarters in Oregon until Obama sends in the troops to martyr us. I think that's our only option. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what we would do. <laughs> It'd be wonderful also to talk about, like, Islamist terrorism more, but we, I think we've gone as far back into contemporary politics as we can go. Just that I think V is no more sympathetic than an Islamist terrorist, really. The regime he's fighting just happens to be more awful than many, you know? So it's like better. It's almost as though it doesn't matter what he stands for. It just matters that he's opposing them, which is what needs to be done. Yeah, I disagree. I mean, I think that that has to do with the means that he's using. But beyond that, the book is about his political goals. So... The fact that he's attacking this specific regime is... i don't Only think, out of coincidence? Or? No, I think it's inseparable from the rest of his character. So if you compare it to an Islamist terrorist and, you know, you're talking about how the difference is that for V, he's attacking a, a more horrible regime. They're not too much worse than Hussein's Iraq, you know? I guess I'm, I'm just saying that, yeah, I, I, I guess some of it has to do with... I don't think you can you can judge the character without looking at the specific political agenda. So certainly with, you know, when you say Islamic, like uh, when you talk about Islamic terrorists, that also refers to a pretty diverse group of people. And of course, uh, in many of those cases, it refers specifically to different occupied countries or regions. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I don't know how appropriate it is to group all of those cases together either. But I think in general, you would have to look at the political agendas that they're supporting in assessing how sympathetic those characters are. I think one commonality among them is that uh, people who are willing to sacrifice themselves or most often people who are willing to train others to sacrifice themselves have often been tortured before. And that is true of V. And there's, that's a reason why he was chosen to have come out of this camp. And I think his relationship to the political philosophy of anarchism should be viewed like these people's relationship to the religion of Islam. Both have, at times in their past, 
supported violence, you know, uh, the violent spread of, of the Islamic community in the Middle Ages, the killing of leaders in at the turn of the 20th century. But, you know, so there's that available to draw upon, but it doesn't necessarily mean that one like must choose the violent parts of the thought system, you know, and, but V does. No, I, I completely, I think that's such an important point because the choice one makes to enact one's ideology via violence is just like that is sort of inseparable from the ideology itself. And so like the fact that he chooses to, even though he believes that the sort of uh, destruction and then rebuilding is like part of his political ideology, the fact that he decides that he's just going to bomb a bunch of stuff is like not excusable because he happens to be opposing a fascist regime it, I, yeah no the, it, it, it recalls this period of yeah. anarchist history in which i might add anarchist the term anarchist was used like the term terrorist is today it was a blanket term for all people the state wishes to suppress like yeah, all it has to do is call them an anarchist when the when the pinkertons were sent in to like kill strikers they called them anarchists you know that was like that was part of it but i think we should just continue our talk about terrorism off the air just uh i think there are just one last thing there there are two ways you can look at how sympathetic v is as a character obviously in the abstract and then what the author is going for so i would agree with you on the first point that in the abstract these cases are you can assess them in the same way but i would just say that the creators here are in my opinion, trying to present this character as sympathetic and as a hero for this cause that should be admired. I don't think he wanted the readers of the comic to throw bombs, personally. I don't Probably so. correct. Yeah. But I think he wanted the, the readers of the comic to, like... Resist. To resist and to, yeah. and to be inspired by V. All right, so that does it for another episode of the Comics First Podcast. Thank you so, so much for listening to this utterly insane experiment. And I just want to remind everyone to check us out on ComicsFirst.com. Again, that's ComicsFirst.com. And I wanted to thank everyone for being here, including Nolan Lannister. Nolan, thank you so much for uh, joining us. You're welcome. I love it every time. Uh, not as much as I do. Uh, Kale, thank you for joining us as well. Hey, you're welcome. I'm glad I got thanked. I was gonna, I was actually gonna be a little upset. Why Nolan's on like every other podcast? Why well, is I he did, getting thanked? Why well, did I? No, get, I'm gonna I thought you. I was the only one getting thank thanked. Actually, Jake Grubman, the uh, the Jesus Christos of uh, Comics First. Thank you so oh, much. Oh boy, yeah. I'm gonna make that public. Yeah, uh, it's been thank made you. public before. You should probably listen to some of the other episodes. <laughs> Just kidding. I'll do that. Just kidding. And Dr. Gabby Beans. Thank you. <laughs> And Connor, your very first podcast, how did it go? It was it was the best night of my life. Thank you. It was the best night of my life, too. And I just want to say you're sporting Comics First Red Hair, and uh, we really appreciate that. So for those of you watching this on a video, um, that's not magenta. That's red. Please. Connor, you have got to go out and have yourself some uh, better nights, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you can say that again. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye.